Thanks for listening to the podcast from River's Edge Church in Spokane, Washington. For more information or to gather with us on Sunday, visit our website at respokane.org. We hope this message is impactful for you and others as we pursue the way of Jesus together. Uh, We're continuing this morning in our series through the book of Ephesians, Uh, but before we do that, uh, I'm actually going to invite Ava up, and she's just going to share some stuff that God laid on her heart, and then we'll continue with the series. All right, so before I share specifically, um, I'm one who kind of, this this is on, right? Okay, I just don't sell my elder in my head. Um, I'm one who tends to mull things over for a while, so... Um, I'm going to share what I wrote in my journal actually back like at Easter time. So I wrote this all the Saturday before Easter Sunday. So I was thinking about things and then um, now I've been learning from everything that I wrote out. So I'll share a little bit about what's currently happening after I read what I was learning and and continuing to learn. So I'll read from my journal for you guys. Okay, so recently I've been mulling things over in my mind about why did we call it Good Friday? Remember this was... Uh, Easter weekend. Um, The plant cycle, why plants just can't live forever, the meaning of different seasons, pruning, and planting with the fall of expectation um, of spring, and vulnerability in trusting God to plant us as seeds. So I've been wondering why plants just can't live forever. Why can't they just keep on growing? For example, thinking of flowers. Well, maybe it would just be stagnant if the same flower was always alive, but when it dies, its seeds are planted and the amount of flowers multiplies. We also don't appreciate flowers if they are always alive. There is something about the anticipation of spring after the death of fall, the dormancy of winter that makes anticipating spring such an exciting, rewarding process. Knowing the physicality of the seasons seasons I've just experienced this year brings it to light for me. Fall, the plants wither and fade, dying, but also planting their seeds in the ground for the hope of growth and blooming in spring and harvesting of fruit in summer. In winter, it sometimes seems as if all plants have died as it draws on and out late into January, February, even March. The anticipation of spring grows ever steady. In winter, it can be hard to believe that the feet of snow will melt. We had a lot of snow this year. The warm days will come back and the flowers will grow. There are days it is really hard to believe that, but then I remember the promise of the seasons. Spring will come. Easter Sunday and the resurrection will come. Maybe we call it Good Friday because the death or fall season of Christ, the winter and dormancy on that Saturday where hope of a living Savior is hard to hang on to and grasp when everything seems dead. But then spring comes. Jesus rises from the dead. New life for us is offered. The beauty is even stronger knowing that Jesus defeated death. Then he continues his ministry harvesting, think summertime, harvesting some and getting it ready so others can do the same. In a book Lynn and I are reading called Woman of the Word, it talks about this pattern throughout the meta-narrative of scripture in the overarching story and the smaller stories. There's this idea of creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Then, even in the spring, to allow the beauty or the flower, uh, the beauty of the flower or the benefit of the fruit, pruning must take place, taking away what is not beneficial for, needed, or dead on the plant. I just did this yesterday with my plants. I took away what was dead so that what was alive might better live, be, um, be taken care of, and drink the water during the waterings. It's so symbolic. I did not make more plant by pruning. I actually took some away so that what was alive could better live, could better be seen. 
I was telling this all to my friend yesterday, and she told me about how she's been learning uh, about vulnerability and trusting God in all of it. And it totally relates. We take a seed, an extremely vulnerable part of a plant, and place it in the ground. Bulbs we place in the ground in the fall with the hope and anticipation of growth in spring. The seed or bulb is placed in the ground where there's the possibility of insects or animals that might eat it, animals or people might trample it, or the weather is harsh. It is vulnerable. We have to be vulnerable, knowing that God will be with us even in the winter as we continue to hope for spring. Then winter is hard. I can think of what I call, or I can think of driving on what I call the Cheney Spokane Highway Road. In spring and summer, these beautiful yellow sunflowers and daisies bloom alongside the road. As I drove into Cheney yesterday, I did not see them. I thought about it and realized that they are growing. The seeds are there. I just can't see them yet. I can't see all that God is doing literally and spiritually while the seed is growing deep roots first before it exposes itself to the elements outside the soil. God is preparing the seed. He prepares our hearts. Soon Easter Sunday is coming. Soon Christ will be resurrected. Soon the plants will bloom. So it's crazy reading this because, um, again, I wrote this um, Easter weekend, and um, I had been at my job for about a year at that point, and I just finished there actually last week. Um, and I, Lane and I are moving to the Tri-Cities in two, about two weeks, um, but none of that was on our radar at this time. We knew that we wanted, he was going to get a job, and we did not want to move to the Tri-Cities. Um, and much has happened to the fact that we are now actually excited about going there. And it's crazy just thinking about how God was preparing me and kind of pulling me from things here that I had loved for so long um, and preparing like me as a seed and growing my roots deeper here and not really sure how um, he was working. I knew that something was happening, but, you know, you can't always put your finger on it. Um, and it's, it, yeah, it's just amazing to see how God is faithful and I still don't understand everything of why we're moving to the Tri-Cities or um, actually what I'll be doing there. I don't have a job yet. Um, so there's still, there's hope and I can look back and see what God has done, but there's still parts that I don't, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know how God's going to move. Um, so you can be praying for us in that. Uh, but I guess I, I had been wanting to share this for so long. There were so many weeks where I was like, I should go talk to Deason. I should go talk to Deason. And then like one Sunday I was going to, but then people were praying for so long. So I was like, ah, I don't need to tell him. But then it was like two Sundays ago, he shared like, you know, I, we never know if you want to um, say anything unless you come up and tell us. And like, even as I was reading this, I'm like, this isn't that important. Why am I sharing this? Why am I sharing this? But um, I think there's just so much truth in it. Um, and yeah, I just... I think I've been learning from it, so I just want to share with you all. So thank you. Awesome. Thanks, Ava. I really appreciate you sharing. Uh, we are uh, continuing in our series this morning uh, through the book of Ephesians. And uh, I've asked Chris Losey to join me and uh, co-teach this morning, so excited to have Chris with me. I'm really excited to get into the scriptures. If you have a Bible or a Bible app, uh, I'll ask that you go ahead and turn with us uh, to uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, and we'll pick up there in a moment. Uh, and because I've asked Chris to join me, and you guys don't know Chris as well as you know me, I thought, Chris, maybe you could just share a little bit about yourself before we actually uh, jump into the scriptures. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, first off, my name is Chris Losey. I am the husband of my beautiful wife, Alex, and I hold the incredible honor of being the father of my two boys, Carson and Skylar. 
Um, I'm going to give you a quick Reader's Digest version, the three-minute snapshot of who I am. I was born in Louisiana. I grew up in Wisconsin, uh, Kenosha, Wisconsin, actually, right on the border of Illinois. Well, what? Got some Wisconsin fans here. Uh, we were still very much, even though we were right on the border of Illinois, we were still, still very much Wisconsin, the uh, land of cheese, beer brats, and, of course, the Green Bay Packers. Now, I'm not a football fan myself, but it's kind of hard to picture Wisconsin and not have those images, and I know she's, she agrees with me. Well, for, first off, I didn't grow up in a kind of standard American household by any stretch of the imagination. To start, my father was actually a practicing Wiccan, um, and if you're not familiar, familiar with that terminology, that simply means witchcraft. Um, so that, for me, was definitely different in terms of growing up than my other friends who were usually either Christian or, you know, I mean, different variations of Christianity, but nonetheless, I was definitely the, the lone duck um, growing up. For context, my first religious book that I can remember owning was actually a book of spells. Um, it was full-on Harry Potter at my house, and that world was a very real and tangible uh, world for me. When I got a bit older, my mother actually remarried, and she didn't marry a, uh, a Wiccan. She actually married somebody who was Muslim, so definitely very different. Um, she ended up converting, and naturally so did I. Um, fast forward some years, I ended up leading the Muslim Student Association at my local college. So as you can imagine, I had a very different approach to Christianity than your average American. In fact, when I was in high school, I hated Christians. I loathed them. I thought they were mindless, emotionally driven, irrational people who believed in a religion that was outdated and on its way out. I would have never, never imagined being a Christian. That was the last thing I could have ever pictured myself being. No way that could not and would not happen. But that all changed for me when I was in my early 20s. I moved out to Southern California. I was out there playing music, doing the thing that I loved, and that I dedicated all of my childhood, my teen years, and my young adult years doing. It was there in a place that I thought held, for me, happiness sense of self-worth. You see, I thought getting signed, playing shows, following my heart, doing what I thought would make me happy would actually be a cure for my current, at that time, my spiritual condition. However, that void, that emptiness that I was feeling didn't go away. If anything, it solidified that I thought my whole life, or the thing that I thought my whole life would bring happiness and a sense of self-worth actually did, in fact, the opposite. I was at least to me, in that moment, utterly hopeless. That was actually my first taste of depravity. Now, I didn't know that terminology then, but that was the first time that I came in knowledge of sin and its consequence, or really started thinking through that. It was the beginning stages of coming to terms with a world that is sick, hurting. Man, it, 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 for me, in that moment, that was a moment where I realized, and I didn't have that terminology, but I just realized that, wait a minute, as I'm pursuing those things, as I'm pursuing those things that I thought would bring happiness, it was actually doing the exact, exact opposite. I was, in that moment, absolutely hopeless. It was then, it was in that moment, my, probably my lowest point in my life, it was in that moment that God decided to reveal truth, reveal my sin with my inability to achieve righteousness apart from him. Not based on my works, 
not based on a spell. It wasn't a tally of how many times I could say the right thing, help enough people, or work hard enough. You see, I realized when Christ came into my life that we rest in his works and not our own. He filled, not me, he filled that emptiness and brought this spiritually confused, really confused, spiritually dead person to life. And it all started when I actually read these verses that we're going to be reading today. Awesome. So uh, we're going to pick up in Ephesians 2, verse 1. Uh, and as we do, I think we have a video from one of our friends in Australia. Hi there, Rivers Edge Church. Hope you're doing well. Uh, my name's Adrian, coming to you all the way from Sydney, Australia. And uh, my wife, Jessica, and I, we have the huge privilege uh, of being on the leadership team here at Grace City Church. Uh, so I'll be reading God's Word to you uh, this morning, but before I get to that, why don't I spend a few moments praying? So would you join with me as we pray together? God, I want to thank you for what unites us, that despite being on totally different sides of the world, that we can call each other brothers and sisters uh, because of what you've done for us on the cross. We thank you that you've adopted us into your family, that because of our shared heritage in you, that we have the same blood, your blood poured out for us, uh, running through our veins. And I thank you, God, that you've called us to the same thing, that our mandate as your church is to shape and renew our cities, to bring uh, transformation in Jesus' name to our neighborhoods and to our communities. And so I pray a blessing uh, over Rivers Edge Church. I pray that you continue to pour out uh, resources and people and favor uh, over this church. I thank you for all that they've already accomplished uh, in their short uh, existence, and I pray that this would just be the beginning uh, of all that you have in store for them. I want to pray as well for Matt and Abby. I thank you for the leaders that they are, for the way that they love uh, and shepherd the people at Rivers Edge Church. I pray that you'll continue to uphold them, uh, sustain them, give them courage, give them wisdom, uh, protect them, I pray, that they would be able to lead your people well uh, into all the purposes that you have for them. And I thank you for the unity that we get to share together now around your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So why don't I read for us? The passage today is from Ephesians chapter 2, starting from verse 1. Verse 1, it says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the, the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. This is the word of God. And we'll actually stop there for now before we continue on in the passage. <clears throat> that was dramatic. Where was I? Uh, in the beginning, uh, God created the heavens and the earth. And when God created humanity, uh, he created them to exist uh, in this garden called the Garden of Eden, and they were to be with God uh, in incredible and open intimacy with Him. They had access uh, to the eternal life that was in God. There's this tree of life uh, in the garden that kept death 
at bay. And they were created uh, as his image bearers, as his uh, vice regents, as ones called uh, to this position of rulership under God, but alongside him, called in a sense to expand his kingdom on the earth. So humanity is created in unique relationship with God and a unique relationship to creation. They're actually the, the pinnacle of creation. And what happens, if you know the story, is that the first human beings rebel against God. Uh, and as they do this, intimacy with God is shattered. Uh, Adam and Eve are actually ejected from the garden, cast out of God's manifest presence, uh, cast out of this place where they have access to eternal life. And overnight, as a result of this rebellion, everything changes. Sin and death have now entered the human story, and a deep corruption has entered the human heart. From this point forward, not only are human beings susceptible to sin and death, but the corruption actually runs deeper than that. It is more than being susceptible. They are actually bent toward sin and death. It is easier from that point forward for humanity to embrace sin and death than it is to embrace God. It becomes sort of this natural default human position The picture that we get of humanity from Genesis chapter 3 forward is not a pretty good humanity that just needs a little pick-me-up or a little shot in the arm, a little polishing. No, the imagery that we get of humanity is a dire one. Adam and Eve and all those who follow are born in this state of deep corruption. In fact, Adam and Eve have two children, for those who are familiar with Scripture, Cain and Abel. And Cain actually kills, murders his brother. These are the first children. And from there, humanity multiplies and spreads out, but they spiral downward as they do. There is greater and greater evil. They are bent towards sin, bent towards self-worship, and away from God. In the theological world, we call this depravity. You may have heard that phrase in a theology class, the depravity of man. Uh, We don't really use that in everyday English, but in theology and in the scriptures we do, there's this sense that there's a depravity. It's not a surface level thing. According to scripture, it actually cuts to the very core of humanity. It, It is deep in our hearts, which is why As you read through the Old Testament, you you get this really um, almost gross, raw, drastic picture of a humanity that is bent away from God, that is bent toward uh, almost Satan, sin, and death. And in fact, spiritually speaking, the scriptures say humanity is dead. Physically, we are still alive, we have blood in our veins. We have thoughts in our heads. We have emotions in our hearts. But spiritually speaking, we are dead. That's how drastic the situation is. Uh, and, And so the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, is not an easy book to read, but it is accurate in its description of the human condition, that human history is a long, sad saga of Cain's killing Abel's, 
and embracing idols along the way. This is the story of human history, worshiping ourselves over God. In fact, the Apostle Paul, in a couple chapters later in Ephesians, describes it this way. Uh, He says, So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you are not to live as the Gentiles do. I haven't memorized the whole thing. In the futility of their thinking, they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God, separated from the life of God, because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. And what's shocking is that this doesn't simply describe Paul's uh, pagan and Gentile next-door neighbors. This description can actually be applied to all of humanity from the day that Adam and Eve walked out of the garden. There's this human problem that runs deep. I totally, I, I 100% agree, and I think it's important, too, when you were saying that, that we recognize that it's, it's us, too, right? It's not just a couple few bad eggs out there. It is us as well. And the depravity of man, using that same ter- terminology, literally colors everything. Our spiritual condition and the brokenness around us is so, so obvious. Let's be honest. You don't need to look past your city, your own city, your own neighborhood, or even your own town or, or country, it doesn't matter where it is, um, even your own house to see that the spiritual condition of the world is in dire straits from the morning news, which is always depressing um, <laughs> to watch, down to your family picnic or even the barbecue that we will be having, which I shouldn't, probably shouldn't announce, but uh, you're, it doesn't matter who, preschool teacher, baker, doesn't matter, we're all in, like Paul alludes to in verse 3, in this together, all is all. This means that we actually have a universal dilemma and not a local, let's blame it again, on a few bad eggs kind of issue. And if Paul is saying that we are not just spiritually sick, but spiritually dead, this means that we literally have a worldwide walking dead pandemic. (laughs) Got Got a couple of people know what I was talking about. We can all say confidently that no history attests, no war can cure. So, so we, we can look back and say, wait a minute, history shows that no war can cure, no TV personality can uncover, so not Dr. Oprah or Dr. Phil, and no spiritual guru can prescribe an antidote for this. This condition is so depraved, we are so far gone that a miracle is absolutely 100% necessary. Outside intervention is needed, and add some more to this job posting. This outside intervention needs to be equipped with the skills of bringing life to the dead. And if you, like me, think there is no one on earth that can possibly do that, you are absolutely correct. Let's face it, there are no gurus out there, the ones promising a cure to this dilemma, who have the ability to give life. This requires a science-defying miracle. There's no human alive today, last year, or even a hundred years ago who can do this. Generation after generation tries to prescribe new cures. 
spiritual band-aids. However, we don't have a case of a spiritual cold or a bad case of the spiritual mumps. We have a disease no man or woman on earth can cure. Right. Uh, and, and I think it's important to recognize before we move on into the second half of the passage is that everybody agrees that humanity has a problem. Like, like that baseline isn't unique to the Christian perspective. Everybody on earth can recognize, whoa, something is wrong. And something is wrong with humanity. That's not really up for debate. Uh, the news is proof of that. Your next family picnic is proof of that. And yes, um, Matt Karsh and I will probably sin against each other at the barbecue this afternoon if volleyball is involved, right? It, it, there's this, it permeates everything. Like everybody can look and see humanity has a problem. And so what we debate passionately as human beings is, hey, what's the true nature of the problem? And therefore, which solution is going to make the most sense? And so every culture, every religion, every society is going to come up with its own solution. Because we know there's a problem. So the solution could be communism, it could be legalism, it could be any number of things, but every culture is going to go after that. So our culture in particular could be described as a post-Christian, secular, progressive culture. Um, that's the culture that we live in, particularly in the Northwest, but increasingly just as a nation uh, and just living in the Western world. And so because we live in that culture, it's going to diagnose the problem in a certain way and therefore prescribe specific solutions because of the way they diagnose the problem. Are you, are you with me so far? Uh, so in our culture, it's not uncommon to encounter people that think along these lines. They say, hey, the problem, the true problem is human ignorance. If only we could all be educated to the right level, then human evil and humanity would be cured. Human evil would go away. If we can all get to the right level of education, it's a knowledge issue. Others are going to look out from the lens of, of Western secular culture and say, no, 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 uh, the problem is human poverty. Uh, poverty and need and injustice, that creates this desperation. That creates this drive toward crime and war and hatred. If we can solve human poverty, then human evil will evaporate as well. Or they'll say, hey, the, the problem is human religion. Because religion, it breeds division. It creates judgmentalism. It creates tension. It creates uh, this hierarchy. It creates us versus them. If we could do away with religion, if we could wash it out of our culture, then human bigotry and war and hatred would all disappear. And likely at least one of those jumped out to you. It's like, oh, whoa, that kind of sounds like me. Or like, oh, that was kind of my family or my school or my whatever. And we could go on and on, the role of technology, the, you know, whatever else it is. The problem is that none of those things can actually cure. We love education here. We love it. There's nothing wrong with technology in and of itself. We fight against poverty here and abroad in, in any way that we can. So there's nothing inherently wrong with the solutions that are being prescribed. The problem is that the, that the human problem runs deeper than those solutions. Are, are you with me? If you don't take the problem seriously enough, you're going to run to solutions. Oh, we're just, we're just spiritually sick. We just need a little shot in the arm. This is what will get us going. This will solve the human problem. But the scriptures are very honest 
in, in describing the depravity of human beings, in the depth of the problem. Uh, and I think as we look back over the last hundred years, increasingly we're beginning to question kind of some of the, the secular theories of the human problem and the solutions to that problem. So if you look back over the last hundred years, you can see that we've had uh, more education, more wealth, more technology, and less religion than any other century in, in all of human history. And yet, it has been the bloodiest century in all of human history. Hundreds of millions of Abel's cry out. Their blood spilled out on the dust. And, and their deaths, their blood on the ground, testifies to the depth of the human problem. Testifies to the fact that, that we are not spiritually sick, we are spiritually dead. So true, Matt. Humanity, when you think of it that way, is truly hopeless without the gospel. With that picture of depravity in our mind, let's go ahead and read the rest of that passage. See, Paul isn't just exposing and critiquing the human condition or human problem. He's actually highlighting the solution, which doesn't come from humanity at all. It's not education, like Matt said. It's not secularism. It says, Paul says in verse 4, but God, the focus then shifts from our spiritual condition and our inability to escape this reality on our own to God's mercy, God's love and grace toward us and his ability to rescue us. Let's pick up again in verse 4. I'll start reading here. But God, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him. Well, all right, I'm back. <laughs> and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable, immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. You and I cannot stand here and say salvation was partially in our courts. We have literally nothing to boast about, for we are his workmanship. And, and I like what the NIV says. It says, for we are God's handiwork. You see, you're not your own handiwork. Pull yourself up by the bootstraps, kind of saved. Not at all. Not at all. Thank goodness that's not the case. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. In the first three verses, Paul clearly shatters our sense of a humanistic superiority, something we can do on our own. It starts with his love, his love toward us. It didn't start as a mutual affinity for one another. It's not a relationship where you can say, you know what? It's tough to say who loved each other first. I mean, it kind of happened at the same time. Think about that. Even our love for him, even that was one-sided. Our love is 
a result of his love. We love because he first loved us, which is 1 John 4.19. That means no one in human history, think about this, no one in human history has ever loved God first. Let's move to the second part of that verse. In verse 4, rich in mercy. Rich in mercy is actually in counterbalance with being rich in sin, which the first three verses clearly portrays that only a merciful God could create a plan to save and redeem such wicked creatures who are able to contribute nothing to the cause. Think about this. In 2 Timothy 2, Timothy refers to us as soldiers for Christ. However, we are called soldiers, yet Christ did all of the work to get us there. And then it gets even better. He empowers us to walk out the things he commands. That is absolutely scandalous. As Paul says in Romans 9, 16, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. We have been pardoned because he is merciful, and it gets even better. It's not because we did or could do or even would do. He doesn't say, well, Chris is pretty good at X. I could really use that skill to help sway the battle against evil. Now, I don't know what skill he would use if that were the case, and I'm, th- I'm thankful that he doesn't because if it was up to me, if the world was up to me to be saved from, this world would be doomed. In verse 5, he then adds some more amazingness. He not only bestowed mercy, he not only loved us first, but he alone made us alive in himself. John 6, uh, 44 and 6.65 says, No one, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And then he says, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him, granted him by the Father. We are absolutely and utterly dependent on him. He made us alive in him. He is the initiator. He is the sustainer. And he is the one who loved us before we loved him. In verse 8 and 9, he says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. And that's so good. This is the solution to the human condition, the cure for this walking dead pandemic. We are solely dependent on God to draw, reveal, and save. That's it. All of it. Draw, reveal, and save. Salvation is fully... It's fully God, and we have nothing, absolutely nothing to boast about. Like Paul said, blessed be the God, and he says this earlier on, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, he who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Ephesians 1, verse 3. He gave us, he, God, again, gave us every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. And then he doesn't leave us here. He, doesn't, he takes a step further again, and he empowers us to walk it out. The amazing part of Ephesians 2 
is that if you are a believer, these scriptures are a part of your story as well. It's not just my story. Everybody who calls themselves a believer in this place has the same draw to these scriptures. The story of how we were all dead in our sins and God made us alive in him. That by grace through faith, you now stand as a believer, just like I do. It was in Ephesians 2 that my story in God hit a climax. These scriptures that we are talking through today are the same exact verses that led me to Christ over a decade ago. Now, I was in Los Angeles, California, as I stated before. I was out there pursuing my passions in hopes of getting closer to the cure of depravity. And again, not knowing that terminology, but nonetheless, as Paul said in verse 2, I was following the ways of this world, gratifying the cravings of my flesh, and following its desires and thoughts. Is that the mic is still on? (laughs) Praise God. The good news, that all changed when God led me to the scriptures for answers. Feeling that prompting, I decided that I would go to this coffee shop that was near my house every morning before work and search the scriptures for answers. I had this commentary Bible, you know, the ones that have all the answers in it for you right at the bottom. (laughs) To me, this Bible was the key. And for somebody who had limited biblical understanding, as you probably can assume from my past, this Bible, I thought, was the answer. However, as God had planned it, I love when God has plans that are different than ours. Praise God for that. I was about to be sideswiped by his grace. Then one day, a day when I thought was going to be an answer-searching morning, I lost that commentary Bible. My key to scripture, as I thought, was lost. And to my dismay, I actually had this cheap paperback Bible in my Jeep. You know, the ones they give you for free. I don't know if they still do this now, but these were like the the really cheap paper-thin Bible that if you were just blow on it, it would just disintegrate. It was, it, was, it was one of those. So I had one use. I could, I could use that Bible one time, and I used it. Well, that was all I had that day, so of course I decided I'm not going to postpone my morning of searching the scriptures for answers. I decided that I would sit down, I would pray and ask the Lord to lead me to what I needed to re- read and reveal what I was reading, because again, I had no biblical understanding, no foundation I had no clue what I was reading, and I needed God to help me. And good news for me, this day was different. When I wrapped up uh, praying, I, I remember having a verse come to mind. I decided I'm following that prompt, and then lo and behold, I landed on a verse about grace. I wrote it down, sat on it. Then again, I got another verse, and you wouldn't believe it, another verse on grace, I sat there and he gave me verse after verse after verse on grace. And in that moment, this skeptic was in absolute awe of what was taking place. I remember thinking to myself, this is statistically impossible for somebody who has no biblical understanding to somehow conjure up almost all the verses on grace in the New Testament. I mean, I can't do that now. And and I've been, (laughs) been following the Lord for a while I remember thinking, this must be God. This must be God. My but God moment had arrived. I still 
remember one of those verses, and we're actually going to be talking through that quite a bit. It's verse 8 and 9. For it is by grace, by grace, not by something I did or could do, you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. This scripture was absolute freedom for me. When I was in the Islamic faith, I had this nagging awareness that I didn't make the mark, that my ability to be accepted by God hinged on my ability, on my ability to achieve, to attain to, to live in a way that pleased God in hopes of me being righteous enough for heaven. Unlike Islam where you need to, you needed to pray enough, long enough, and in the right way, I now came to learn that the cure was actually the opposite. But now I knew. In Jesus, we can know and have confidence in our standing with God. Why? Because it is all resting on him. I was no longer at the whims of the next spiritual guru, the next self-help book, and a culture that was telling me that I had it all together. That if I work for the cause, maybe one day we can find a cure. But for me in that moment, I didn't need to search any longer. He was my cure. I was now made alive in Christ, and my life from that point forward was forever changed. Amazing. <clears throat> yeah, I love that. I love that story. And it's, it's, I didn't have, I was an atheist before I became a Christian, and so I didn't have that background of like, works righteousness, but you forget, I forget, that there are like billions of people around the world alternating, like working in other religions that have that mindset of I, if I do enough, if my good deeds outweigh my bad, it's, it's on my shoulders. Yeah. And I won't really know um, until I die what my fate is before God. And we have this amazing assurance that it doesn't actually rest on your shoulders. It doesn't rest on my shoulders. That it's actually this miraculous one-sided mm. thing from God that we place our faith in him and God does everything else. And I love what you were saying earlier, Chris, when we were talking through the passage. Uh, Chris said, salvation uh, is actually the greatest miracle. And I don't know if I'd ever heard it said that way. Salvation is actually God's greatest miracle. And God has done some amazing things uh, in the past, uh, through the scriptures, in our lives, but there's nothing greater than this. There's nothing greater than salvation by grace through faith, than finding a way to separate humanity from its own sin, from its own brokenness and corruption, to bring us back to life and to give us eternal life with him. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this isn't, this isn't a second string, bench warming kind of miracle. If, if a living person right now were to pass away and then get risen from the dead, I think we would all be in awe. I mean, I would be in awe, rightfully so. In fact, I think our spiritual miracle meter would be overflowing. Some might even feel that they don't need to see anything more, that they have seen it all. However, this is not the greatest miracle. A spiritually dead person being risen to life in Christ, now that, that is a greater miracle. One, one is being risen to eternal life with Christ and the other is not. Salvation is 100% miraculous. Yeah, so, so kind of zooming out as we close here, 
we see from the scriptures and from our own experience, humanity has this incredible problem, this, this corruption, this deep need. How is God, this is part of the tension of scripture in the Old Testament, how is God going to solve this? How is God going to fix the human problem and bring them bring back, back into, into eternal life with him? That's kind of what we're waiting to see unfold. Then we see in Jesus is actually completely God. He sacrifices himself, and it's by grace through faith that you have been saved. And, and out of that, out of this one-sided miraculous thing from God, we actually get renewed lives. We actually then go out and live uh, good works, but one comes out of the other. So if you throw those verses one more time, eight and nine, these are the verses that we've been focusing on. It's, uh, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves, that is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. That's what we've just unpacked, the beauty of that. But notice that good works are still present. That was my insert. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So there's good works involved in our discipleship to Jesus, but notice which one comes first. Is it salvation by grace or is it works? It, it's salvation by grace through faith, and good works follow. And there's a human tendency to try and reverse those. There's a human tendency to say, no, by good works, I become acceptable to God. By my own holiness and righteousness, I, I become acceptable to God. I become acceptable to Jesus. I somehow earn eternal life. Uh, but you have to see the connection here. The good works actually flow out of the renewed heart. Uh, the good works are the byproduct of God's salvation. Uh, the good works are the fruit of of the salvation that God brings about, not the basis for the salvation. Do you see the difference between the two? An orange tree cannot produce apples. It can strive, it can strain, it can stress, but it will never produce an apple. And, and essentially, what God is saying through Paul is God saying, hey, I want apples. And, and apples only come from apple trees. So God is going to take you, you sinful little orange tree you, and, and he's going to transform you into an apple tree. You, you are now, the scriptures say, a new creation. And what do apple trees do? They produce apples. And they don't stress and strain and strive. That's just what an apple tree does. And so Paul's saying you're born dead in your sin. You're born spiritually dead. Christ brings you to life. He makes you a new creation. He changes you from an orange tree, to use that analogy, into an apple tree. And now, because God's brought about this transformation that you could not possibly bring about yourself, now you're going to bear fruit. There's these good works out front that God has prepared in advance for you to do. So now that you're transformed, get about the business. Now that you're an apple tree, go out and bear fruit, the type of fruit that a renewed heart bears. And because our hearts have been made new, because he took something that was spiritually dead and brought it back to life, now we can bear fruit for God's kingdom. 
So, a few quick takeaways as we attempt to wrap all of this up and head to worship. Uh, first, if you're taking notes, salvation is by grace through faith. And that's it. If you've already placed your faith in Jesus, then this morning we marvel at what God has done. Anyone here ever seen someone raised from the dead in Jesus' name? Show of hands. Happens all the time around the world. Um, somehow not often in America, but I have friends who have seen that or friends who have experienced that. Okay, so that happens. I would be blown away if I saw that. And as Chris was saying, it's actually not the greatest miracle. That person, life coming back into a dead corpse, which happens in the name of Jesus, guess what? That person's still going to die. They get a new lease on life. They got a few more years. When you are saved by grace through faith, you will live forever. What? You will live forever. Because of God. Because of what God has done for you. It is 100% miraculous, and we rejoice in that. Second, if you're taking notes, uh, God has prepared good works in advance for you to do. He knows you. He knows your name. He knows your personality. He knows your wiring. He knows how many hairs are on your head. And he has stuff out front that he wants you to anticipate. Okay, what if we went through day by day, not only marveling in our salvation, but saying, because of my renewed heart, there will be wide open doors of opportunity in my workplace, in my home life, in my commute, on my whatever it is. God will open doors of opportunity for knowing exactly who you are and your personality and your voice and your strengths and weaknesses. He knows all of that. And he's prepared good works in advance for you to do, which are going to look different than the ones he's prepared in advance for me to do. But as followers of Jesus, we get to rejoice in that and, and live into that, anticipate it, uh, because God has prepared them. And finally, uh, as we close, it almost goes without saying, but one of those good works is sharing the gospel. We carry the greatest news that humanity has ever heard. You and I are living witnesses of the goodness and the salvation of God. And so now we carry that out into a hurting world. And whether your friends and neighbors identify as being Muslim or Wiccan or secular atheists or whatever the case might be, this is the best possible news that they could hear. It doesn't matter who they are. This is the best news that they could hear. It's the best news on record. The age-old problem that started back in Genesis 3 of humanity being dead in their sin, alienated from God, and without hope in the world. That problem has now met its match in Jesus of Nazareth. And we carry the beauty of that into the world. We speak that good news to those who are still among the walking dead, as I was, as Chris was, who are still the walking dead in hopes that God will bring them to life, that they too will come to life in him. This is the best news that we could receive, that it's not up to us, it's up to God, and he has done it. Let's pray.